You're listening to the Blissful Hiker Podcast. I'm Allison Young, the solo, female, middle-aged, titanium-reinforced, long-distance backpacker, Blissful Hiker, sharing stories to empower you to learn to hike your own hike, too. If you enjoy these podcasts, please consider supporting them through Patreon. There's a link in the show notes or at blissfulhiker.com. This week, I walk into the Grand Canyon. It's one of the most thrilling experiences of my entire life. I barely sleep, tossing and turning, trying to figure out what to do. Should I wait out the weather, or should I just move forward? In New Zealand, I learned sometimes it's best to just keep moving. Yeah, there's going to be snow, but it won't last, and only after it comes will the temperatures drop. Maybe it's better to just get ahead of the weather. Before it's light, I hear the group of day hikers, the ones going in and out of the canyon in one day, leaving. So only Tammy is left, choosing not to join them and agreeing to drive me to Grand Canyon Village so I can skip yet another long, monotonous Ponderosa Pine forest section. I like her. She's a skier, a woodworker, an RVer. And she's no-nonsense. We're exactly, precisely the same age. And it's a pretty long drive to the permit office. I'm so glad I skipped all of this. I gotta be honest, the Arizona Trail is making me rethink through hiking. I mean, there's so much boring sameness to get to the highlights, especially in northern Arizona. Now the weather is pushing me forward, but so is the spectacle of the Grand Canyon, which takes my breath away as we pass viewing points. At the permit office, I'm number seven in line and get behind people seemingly wanting to analyze every single trail before deciding where to go. It's slightly maddening because my request is simple and I really need the full day to get there. It would have been healthier to start at dawn, but you can't get permits by phone. I finally get mine, only to be admonished that I'm not going to be used to road walking on the North Rim, and so I'll likely have to camp within the park boundaries. That'll be another $8, please. Oh my God, I just don't argue. Knowing the North Rim climb of over 4,000 feet is a killer, but my hope is to move as far as I can once I reach the rim. Tammy of the RVers has basically saved me. The village is huge, and there is a bus, but it helps immeasurably to be taken directly to the store where I need to resupply. I was so hungry these last days, I buy far too much. And then at the Outfitters, I'm unable to find anything resembling a sleeping bag liner to make mine warmer. Tammy suggests, why not just buy two emergency blankets? So I throw them in. It could be a lifesaver when the lows hit in the teens. She drops me at the road, and I walk into the Kaibab Trail. The wind is wild, and the place is packed with day hikers and a few backpackers. People keep asking me if I'm going to sleep down there, and I explain I will also continue to the North Rim, then to Utah. Mostly everyone is just happy. They're so excited to be here. I mean, the Grand Canyon is such a phenomenon, it's nearly impossible to explain layer upon layer of color, revealed in birthday cake erosion, all done by a river over eons. I'm absolutely bowled over by its sheer size, but also the distance to the bottom. Have I made a mistake in setting this goal? 
My permit is for an actual site, not an overflow or pack mule site, usually reserved for AZT hikers. My plan is described as an aggressive itinerary and comes with a solo warning on my permit. Hiking solo means you have nobody to help you should you run into trouble. I know that, but it does make me scared. All I can do is set my legs for a steep descent and enter this phenomenal space. The trail is dusty and it flies in my face from the big wind gusts. I hold on to my hat saying hi to all I pass, some people moving well, others struggling up the steep climb. It's a wide trail built with low rock walls and sometimes in rock tiles. Mostly, wooden pieces are placed at intervals to prevent erosion. It makes, though, for hard walking, and I eventually loosen my knees and jump from one lumpy bit to the next. First, the color is a deep umber, with ponderosa hanging on ledges. Then we enter a more washed-out gray area, with sage green on flat mesas. What makes the Kaibab so special is that the trail ventures out onto peninsulas, so the entire time you feel like you're floating above the canyon. Fanciful shapes come into view as we hit a flat bit, one that's aptly named the Ooh-Ah View. At Cedar Ridge, it seems all the day hikers pull out sandwiches and find shade. But I push on, having not brought enough water for this total sun exposure. It's not hot, but it's relentless. Even down can wear you out as my calves begin to tighten. At Skeleton, the trail completely changes into a tight and very steep set of switchbacks. I can see deep into the canyon as they descend, changing color from red to gray. Down and down I go, passing hedgehog cactus with bright purple blossoms. I feel the river getting closer as I arrive at the tip-off, where a beautiful shelter has been set with shade and water collection barrels. Finally, I fill a liter and drink it right down, then take more with me. It's now that I arrive at the steepest section, switchbacks laying nearly on top of each other all the way to the muddy green Colorado. It seems impossible that my body will go all the way down to the suspension bridge I see below. I continue leaping ever so gently from one raised lump to the next, letting my body sort of fall down the trail. Many keep asking me if I'm camping below, and I explain it's still many miles up from the bottom. I pass old people, families, a couple of guys who try to stop my seeing their friend peeing off the side. I'll just avert my eyes, I tell them as I keep going. And finally, I reach a tunnel and the bridge. Across it, I find a faucet, so I have lunch here and drink two liters in the shade. My legs are so happy to go up again as I plod past rubber boats, then the campground, and Phantom Ranch, where air-conditioned cabins are powered by massive solar panels. I follow Clear Creek into a tight canyon of twists and turns. The walls are thousands of feet high and tight around me. This trail was built by the Conservation Corps in the 1930s and is wide and well-buttressed with rock walls. 
I pass tourists on a day hike to Ribbon Falls and dozens of hikers in the middle of a rim-to-rim event. Most move well, but they must be wrecked only carrying a water vest. I'm wrecked, simply exhausted from the excitement of the descent and its challenge on my body in the bright sun. I shuffle up into this extraordinary canyon of rock ramparts and peaks, the creek rushing loudly. Beautiful bridges abound, and my fear that I can't get to camp fades. But I start to feel loopy. I didn't sleep well, but this could be something else, not just exhaustion, but heat exhaustion. What's my name again? Where am I going? Oh boy, I gotta sit down. I've gotta find shade right now. As I sit there and relax, a backpacker rounds the bend in a similar colored top as mine. Sisu is her name. She's an Arizona trail hiker. I'm so happy to see her because it gives me courage that heading on is the right choice. Sisu says she bought a bunch of hand warmers for the cold and thinks maybe my emergency blankets are a smarter move. Sisu is a strong hiker, but tells me she too brown-blazed, walking the forest roads rather than trail in many instances. That makes me feel better, too. I admit I skipped from Grandview to the canyon, mostly for the weather, but also because I just had enough. We're both going to the same campground, the only campground, Cottonwood, and she eventually heads on, walking fast as the canyon widens opening up and getting steeper. Bright green cottonwoods grow on sandbars in the center of the creek. I'm tired and I'm ready for camp as the trail goes up, then down into willows. The runners keep coming down and one couple heads up to the falls. At a junction, I meet up with Sisu and Volt, a young male hiker leaning back and enjoying the view down our tight canyon. They say they want to cross the river and see the falls, but I've had enough. I'm wiped out, and so I climb up and I snap a picture of the falls from the trail. Mountain paintbrush and fluorescent orange lines the path, and the prickly pear are on the cusp of blooming. Finally, I see a flat spot ahead with cottonwoods. There's a ranger house, toilets, and sites with picnic tables. The water is shut off, but the creek is close. Sisu and Volt catch up to me, changing their mind about the falls. I tell them that I have a real permit, and I invite them to join me in a shaded spot. They're both so grateful, and I tell them how grateful I am that they're here, and I won't go up alone to the North Rim and the cold weather beyond. We gather water, set our tents, and eat at the table. Such lovely, easy-to-talk-to hikers, so real and down-to-earth. It's a surprise at the end of a glorious day, one that's left me in awe, but also exhausted to the bones. 4,300 feet of climbing await, with no water for five miles. But right now, there are friends doing the same walk. Just having them here gives me the strength I'll need. You're listening to The Blissful Hiker Podcast, a series of personal essays coupled with found sound and my own flute playing. In it, I explore my journey of self-discovery as a middle-aged woman 
sharing the sometimes unglamorous but vital truth about empowerment. It's the last night I'll be hot in my tent. The wild wind finally settles and I barely lay the quilt over me. Our neighbors are up before dawn and their headlamps bleed into my tent. Hasn't anyone heard of the red light as an alternative to the blinding setting on a headlamp? Jeez, I always take a headlamp with me and batteries, but I never seem to use it. My night vision is good enough for me not to use a headlamp to get myself to the fancy composting privy. Well, as long as I'm up, I decide to get ready and start walking. The direct sun did a number on me yesterday, and I still have a mild headache. Perhaps it would be safest to get some miles behind me before the sun blasts into the canyon. It'll be uphill all day except for a very few bits, 4,200 feet in seven miles. There's only one water source on the way up in Manzanita, a kind of rest area with benches, another fancy two-story bathroom and running water. I'll need to fill up and ration through the climb. My plan is to get to the rim, then hike as far as possible on the Grand Canyon Highway, which is plowed but closed to the public, and then try and beat the cold front coming in. The reason for the roadwalk is the trail is still covered in snowdrifts. It would be a wet and muddy affair to risk it, as well as quite slow. But that means the canyon is all mine right now. There are no runners clogging up the path. It's just me and the fwee-fwee of a canyon wren. The trail is steeper now, rising quickly in switchbacks above the pump house. This is one of the oddities of the canyon, how the zigzag of the trail seems to stack on top of itself as seen from above, because the steepness is so dramatic. I move slowly but steadily and find just the rhythm to fall in love with this magnificent tight canyon. I snap pictures, seeing all the way to the top, when the trail turns to the left up a different canyon. Across from me is Roaring Springs, a cascade in full roar. I laugh when a trail spur points to it, yet emphasizes, there's no water. This will be the canyon that gets me to the rim, but how? I can only see a portion of trail in front of me. It follows the vertical rock wall, then seems to disappear. Sometimes it switches back, but other times it's hidden by the shape of the rock. The trail is wide enough, but the edge is right there, and a stumble could be catastrophic, the bottom hidden now in dark shadow. I'm very careful, and I hug the wall as it curves over me, then around in a U-shape. Logs create steps at one steep spot that curves back on itself over a large promontory. I find a shady spot to drink a liter and eat a snack. As I've climbed higher into this colorful rock, I've seen the rim get ever so closer. It's white rock atop red and appears absolutely vertical. In fact, most of the red rock ahead is adorned with towers and impenetrable buttresses. So far, I've mostly sidled the rock. Now it appears the real climbing begins. But not before I descend steeply to a bridge across the canyon, taking me to the other and better side for the task at hand. And it is real work, a series of zigzags bringing me closer to the wall that appeared unclimbable. 
The miracle of the engineering is the trail's invisibility from below. As my path is revealed bit by bit, it creates a joyous tension that's truly exhilarating. Each twist and turn is a surprise as I walk it, but also from the views revealed, sometimes of a thousand-foot airspace to the canyon floor. Now the joy is in the route revealed. How do we get past that giant rock? Why, a tunnel! The Supai Tunnel, to be exact. Another spiffy long drop and water spigots that are off at the moment because of freezing temperatures. I notice it is getting colder as I ascend. Patches of snow cling to the walls, and I finally meet the white rock. But it's not the tip-top. Above is dirt with massive pines. It's my Ponderosa. They're back. It's still a lot of switchbacks to get closer to the trees. From above, the trail is visible, and I come to Coconino View and consider lunch here. But it's really cold, so I settle for pictures and a last look. Volt and Sisu never catch up. It's kind of sad leaving this beautiful place and pressing on, but bitter cold is coming and I need to get a move on. I wonder if I'll remember these spectacular past two days. How hard it was, how elated I felt. The views, the trail, the friends, the sound of the rushing water, and the drama of the brooding rock. Just as I begin ascending, a man walks down. He looks too casual to be a runner. Jeff is his name, and he lives here, working for the National Park. He's an EMT and wilderness ranger, but mostly builds things, and now he's just taking a stroll. I tell him about my plan to walk and to avoid the cold, and he assures me there are other hikers walking the road, as well as park employees driving it. I head on and have lunch next to two large black and hungry ravens. It's cold and it's getting overcast, so I begin my journey. The ranger yesterday wasn't totally wrong and that the road walking is pretty unpleasant. It's hard on the feet, but also hard on the eyes. It's a different forest here with aspen and fir, but early spring means a somber mix of melting snow and brown grass. Friends, I last about three miles. I mean, don't get me wrong, I love to hike, but this kind of hiking serves no purpose but to transfer the hiker from one place to the next. It's 43 miles to the next town, and it'll be 16 degrees in two days. One car passes me, and then a truck slows down. It's Jeff! <laughs> He's on his way to Jacob Lake, so no trouble to drop me there. He tells me very few hikers do hitch as we pass a few, there's Waldo wrapped up in a scarf, and I think I see Clothesline and John the Baptist. The landscape is much more lovely at a faster pace anyway. Jeff tells me these beautiful alpine meadows turn brilliant green with millions of flowers for a brief moment, the aroma intoxicating. But that's a long way from now. It's straw brown, and I can't tell you how happy I am to skip it. It's trail after Jacob Lake. An ordinary forest again. It's about 26 miles to the end, so it'll just be one more night out and, hopefully, an early return home. 
There are so many details to manage, and I get distracted by them to the point I don't pay attention to where I've entered the trail. Just when it's time to look for a camp spot, I walk into a burn zone. Its tall trees charred, and they make for an unsafe place to pitch a tent. The ground is ashy and everything is burned. I don't quite have the daylight to walk through it, but I push forward, hoping to find anything that's unburned. No such luck. The sootiness goes on and on. It makes me sad to see this waste, and it emphasizes my own burnout. The Grand Canyon was such a charge, and this just makes me feel depressed. It's exactly why thru-hiking is beginning to seem absurd to me. All that walking through sameness just puts me off. The trail dips down into a ravine, but rather than exit, it stays down there, following a wash with logs reduced to cinders at the bottom. It's not easy walking at all in gravelly sand, and it goes on and on in this dark pit. Gee whiz, from roadwalk in a frigid forest, to an ashy burn zone, to a wash in a dark ravine. How is this even fun? I can't really camp in ash, and I can't camp in here because it's all rocks. So I just have to keep walking. And on my map, I see a place where the contours flatten. Yes, they do. A huge meadow of dried mud, lumpy from cattle's footsteps. But I follow the perimeter, looking and looking as mountains appear ahead, and the sun sets in pink and purple. I finally choose a flattish spot and dive in quickly as it's getting cold. You know, this may be the very worst place I've ever camped. It's flat enough and absolutely silent, so perhaps I'll sleep well. I'm tired from the climb, and I'll close my eyes now, conjuring up the beauty and excitement of that moment, letting the bits that came after to act in service of simply getting me closer to putting this hike to bed. You can subscribe to Blissful Hiker wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're listening on Apple, leave a review. That helps the show get discovered. As I mentioned, Blissful Hiker is on Patreon right now. You can support the show financially as a patron. Help me get on trail to collect sound and to create these stories. Find a link to Patreon in the show notes or at blissfulhiker.com. That's also where you can find other episodes, read the blog, see pictures, and contact me, blissfulhiker.com. Next week, I finish the Arizona Trail, entering Utah near Wire Pass and the intricate maze of slot canyons that I walked years ago. It's going to be a good feeling to put it behind me. Until then, my friends, kia kaha and happy trails.